0: Good afternoon, everyone. It's Office Hours, and it's Wacky Wednesday with my two wacky buddies, the double mics here with me, Mike Diamond, a dose of positivity, a best-selling book, unbelievable friend, author, speaker, and recovery specialist, and another recovered soul with me, the at Michael Unbroken. He's not broken anymore, but he's helping others unbreak and break as well. Bam welcome to office hours my brothers well anyway i thought we'd start off this is episode 499. mike diamond and i met pre-covid uh came up with an idea we got to do more together and we decided to do a virtual and it, it has exploded since a tv show has blossomed from it and a podcast has blossomed from it and a digital show has blossomed and now we've added the second mic so i thought you know i'll turn over the mic mike diamond today and Mike Unbroken and I will be his first guest.
1: So I want to do this. First of all, so grateful, right? What What? what can you believe? Three years. Wow. Unbelievable. It's amazing. Um, so my question is this, and Dave, you can answer it first. When you, I remember when you made the pivot to make the TV show, originally it was going to be on Amazon Prime, and then you hate to make that quick pivot. How did you,
2: because
1: I know there was a little... frustration you know you you went from guaranteed amazon prime
0: we we were on we were on for two seasons on amazon prime and
1: right and then you had they weren't
0: uploading they weren't uploading them the second season and we were getting offered other places so yeah Yeah. go ahead so
1: how did you emotionally because this is where people get stuck and the same question will lead to michael unbroken How did you emotionally deal with the setback, right? And then readjust everyone and yourself to focus in a new direction.
0: Well, we still had Bloomberg. So it was a little bit easier. We had the Bloomberg television deal and Amazon Prime uh, ended up being a better distribution than Bloomberg. So that was where I could have had the old Dave frustration resistance created. Um, For me... It was more the people, right? I, I always have. There's life circumstances in life. In uh, the life circumstances are okay. I got to find new digital distribution. There's a lot of digital distribution out there, but it's the life side of it, the people involved that oversold, back-end sold, lied, manipulated, or cheated to me. How quickly could I get rid of uh, the anger, the need to be offended, uh, all, all the things of. Here I go again, uh, this great success. And once again, my faith plays a a different role today, right? I I went to forgiveness and gratitude. I said I was being protected and promoted. And next thing I know, Martha Stewart recommended me for this entrepreneur development deal. And we put all our shows on Apple TV. Um, So, but I, I think it's important that, Look, the only difference between Dave Melcher 10 years ago and the one that, you know, quickly transitioned to a better place uh, was I only spent minutes and moments pissed off and in ego instead of not only probably what I spent days, weeks, months and even years suing and blaming and, you know, creating a mess and not getting an Apple TV deal because of it. Instead, I just spent minutes and moments and, and got excited and said, hey, we built something super good and you know, something better is coming. And here we are with all these shows and a development deal. And we got Game Set Life. We have Office Hours. We have Two Minute Drill. We have the Playbook. We have the Reach TV deal at airports and hotel rooms and, you know, assisting them in getting the NFL into hotels Then built that network. And they've stayed loyal to me. I'm the only uh, of this type of show that's still on Reach TV uh, that you see Office Hours, you see us on there uh the playbooks on there as well uh because keep on living in value so mikey
1: going off that now dave was there any trauma from the past that was triggered because like when you lost a hundred million dollar deal you had a lot of people cheat you lie to you did any trauma get triggered
0: yeah immediately for sure and and look my wife you know sometimes throws flame on, on my feelings right which is part of the reason no right because she's like why does this always happen to you happen to you right why does this always happen to you and i'm like well no it doesn't just happen to me people lie manipulate, and cheat people every day and i have less people in my life like that but i've learned how to make the best of this and make better of this and not even the best of it i make better of it um and i will i've got to give you my favorite quote uh from my trip i'm always looking for lessons and stories how about this for for something If you want great, it's going to start with hard. If Mm. you want amazing, it's going to start with impossible. So when things seem impossible to me, I know it's a start to something amazing. If it's hard, I know it's a start to something great.
1: Yeah. All right, Mike, because you're a trauma specialist, and we've spoken, you've suffered so much trauma. When you hit a wall, whether it's the podcast, whether it's writing your book, whether it's making the transition to Vegas, how do you remain out of the trauma and sit in yourself and then, you know, push forward.
3: Yeah. You know, I I think it's momentary and monumental at the same time because there's these experiences where I will be good and then I won't. And, you know, the one thing I always try to teach my clients is like, this is a rest of your life game. Like, don't ever think that just because you read a book, you're on the podcast, you got the coaching, you, you did the work that it's magically going to be different overnight. Because what, what it is now, Mike, I'll give you a great example. When, when I was young and unhealed and I hadn't started the journey and I wasn't living my life in prosperity and seeking abundance and greatness and all of the things that I have today, I was blaming and shaming and guilting and judging and all of that. But for me first, and so I'd hit a roadblock and the gap of time would be as big as this screen, right? Where I'd be like, I'd be stuck for days, weeks, months, and years. And now it's like, how do I be stuck for 36 seconds? Right. And it's about shifting into gratitude because I I don't know, I've never experienced being able to simultaneously hold on to competing emotions. I can't be pissed off and very excited at the same time. It's almost impossible. And so when I hit a roadblock, when my back is against the wall, I mean, even in the process of of real life business, I I love this show because we do business. I have failed businesses. I have lost employees and team members. I have fired business partners. I have gotten back in deals the whole nine. And it's just always reminding myself this isn't the final product, right? I I hope every single day that I get to live another 50 plus years on this earth, which means I'm only barely a third through this journey. And so if that's true, then what do I need to do to continue to move myself forward? More people, and this is how I used to be. More people are terrified of success than they are failure. And so we get tied in the failures again and again and again, we leverage them as our worth, as our validity in the world, as who we are. And it's like, I refuse that, Mike, just straightforward. Like, I don't know how else to phrase it, a lot of it is filling the safety of my community, my mentors, my coaches, the people who have put me under their wings and said, you're going to be able to do this. So there is that element to it, but dude, I'm the one who got to put that on the shoes every single day and walk out the door. And so I just remind myself, no matter how bad it is, Mike, it will never be as bad as stealing food when I was eight years old to survive.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Melsa, and for Mike, you first, is it work that never ends?
0: Yeah, of course it's not work though, it's yeah. activities, right? And it's for, a pursuit. Yeah. yeah, or not paid for, right? Either way. And yeah. I love that quote there in the in the notes, right? How big would you dream if you knew you couldn't fail? And that's a testament to faith. So if, if you how much do you believe that you know there's something bigger than you that knows everything and loves you more than your mom? And I keep myself in that place. So the 36 seconds that Michael Unbroken talks about is quite easy to get to. When I have faith. If you don't have faith, then you can't believe, you know, how big would you dream if if you knew you couldn't fail? And understanding too, you know, what others are mirrors of yourself. And so when you're lied to, cheated, manipulated, you know, I love people who stand in you, Mike and Michael. We're humble that we laugh when, you know, certain things happen to us because we've done it before there's very few things, especially between the three of us that we haven't done. So there's no judgment. There's just, how can I help you learn what I've learned? So you don't do that anymore because happy people don't do that. And, uh, you know, I've seen really good people and we're going to see this again with the downturns that are going on. I've seen good people that have hit points that you've hit in Michael, even in business recently that you hit good people when they get desperate. They do bad things. And I still think they're good people, right? I, I still think they're good people, but good people, uh, when put in their desperate situation, do bad things. And I don't think that's necessarily, oh my, I'm not gonna stand on a pedestal and say, oh, but you know, it's what you do when nobody's looking. It's, you know, paying back the IRS, you know, or whatever. Look, good people get desperate and they do shitty that's things. Okay. Yeah. It's, you know, how can we teach them not to? and to take and make the most out of doing the right things when things do get tough yeah so because you know it's going to start with hard to be great it's going to start with impossible to be amazing
1: i love that and mikey for you it's the same right to stay in the process
3: yeah. Look, I mean, here's the reality. Life is iterative, right? And we are all constantly in this phase of learning. And every time you learn, it's about, can you stretch the time between making the mistake? I don't know about you guys, but I've done things where I'm like, I cannot believe I just did that again. And it's like seven <laughs> yeah. years from the time I had done the thing. And so I'm always thinking to myself, well, if it's iterative and I'm learning and I'm progressing and I'm always growing then the journey doesn't end until you die. And so spiritually, I try to align with myself in this way where I give myself permission to understand that failure is inevitable, but I take from that failure data. And you know, I've made pretty much every mistake a person can make in life. Like I, I'm right there with David on this. I don't think between the three of us, we probably don't have at least 30 felonies. And so I sit <laughs> and I, I look at this journey and I go, okay, cool. I've made tremendous mistakes, but they have made me who I am today. And so if I don't leverage my identity based on my failures, but instead my willingness to be a learner and to learn, then I can understand that in this process with it being so long and irritative, irritative that like effectively the thing that's going to happen is I'm just going to keep learning. So even when my back's against the wall, even when I make mistakes, even when I'm outside of my integrity, which happens to all of us and I dare anyone to say otherwise, I go, okay, what did I learn from that? And it's just like David mentions, I'm looking for the stories and the lessons and all of the aspects of my life, knowing that this game ain't over till it's over. So until it's over, I'm just going to keep
0: growing. I love that and leads us to our next guest uh, who's waiting in the wings. Um, Richard Moran is here general partner at Tonic BioVentures, but has a new book as well, complementary to the dose of positivity. Uh, it's called Never Say Whatever, How Small Decisions Make a Big Difference. Um, and this is type of a blueprint a print for everyone uh, in a trajectory towards what they think they want. Welcome to Office Hours, Rich.
2: Hey, hi, guys. Thanks. Glad to be here.
0: It's great to have you. And, you know, it's so interesting because... Uh, In the incremental aggregation of energy, behavior, money, whatever you want to look at, there's three characteristics that I think is aligned with your book in the lessons that you teach. And it's, you know, small decisions aggregate on themselves. They compound the outcomes and they accelerate the outcomes as well. And a lot of people, uh, you know, let's take money, right? Everybody's here, take care of your pennies and the dollars will take care of themselves. It's the same reason to never say whatever. Uh, for you, how do you articulate the idea of these small decisions and too many people just passing on an opportunity to aggregate, compound, and accelerate? Yeah,
2: well, well, people under underestimate how many small decisions there are. Who, in any given day, uh, some researchers at Cornell discovered that in a, in a, any given day we make about thirty five thousand small decisions and they are iterative. And, and whenever you say whatever, two things are happening. You're either sending out a message that you're a loser or a stoner, or you don't, you don't care. But the most important thing is you're not making a decision. When you say whatever the decision that that is not a decision. It's a, it's blowing off the decision. It's being dismissive or passive aggressive or saying, I don't give a damn or it means a lot of things, but so I'm, I've sort of taken it upon myself to eliminate that word and that attitude from, from the vernacular, because nothing good happens when you say it.
1: Mm. Yeah. With with saying that, Rick, Rick, sorry. um, It still is a decision in that, in that way, isn't it? Because you're making that small decision in a way to just pass the buck and quit and just like throw your hands up. Oh, I'm useless. So how Right. When you're yeah. working with someone that does that and just throws in the towel and basically is a victim, yeah. how do you reframe their perspective to get them yeah. back into reality? Like you've got to make a decision, not what if, yeah. you know, do it. What are yeah. you going to do? So
2: what's the first you know, approach you I interviewed use? a bunch of leaders for the book and, you know, good leaders don't say whatever. They, they make decisions. Imagine Steve Jobs saying whatever. Imagine Warren right. Buffett saying whatever. They, 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 they didn't say that. So... A couple things happen. One is um, I, a woman leader that I interviewed for the book, Layla Lance. When people say whatever to her, she stops and says, "What does that mean? Tell me what that means. Does it mean, you know, you want me to make the decision? Does it mean you don't care?" What well, and and she says it just, you know, jars people in their preserves. I mean, it just kills kills them, and they they respond. But the other thing I learned, and this is. Uh, a really important part of the of the book is about just being intentional. Now, when we hear about intentionality, you know, you think about visions and missions and, you know, the, the grand the grand scheme. But an intention can be, you know, getting up in the morning and feeling good. An intention can be, you know, the metaphor I use all the time is, you know, if you intend to lose weight, you make decisions about being on a diet. If you intend to uh, get in shape, you make decisions to take the stairs, not the elevators. But it's hard to make that. It's hard to declare those intentions all the time. But, you know, if you intend to get a turkey sandwich, when when they ask you what you want, you don't say whatever. You know, so I mean, it's just, I can't make it any more simple than decisions follow intentions. And I make and, intentions are hard to clarify all the time. It's, it's, it's not easy.
3: Rich, one of the things I think about some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world make decisions fast. Yeah. Why is that important?
2: Yeah, they do. Well, Bain did a big study on this. They call it the two minute rule that the decision that you probably would make in the first two minutes is probably the same one that you're going to make two weeks later after you suffered over it for, for Mm. two weeks. And, they did all the analysis and all the all the spreadsheets and all the interviews that that makes that makes that clear. And I think sometimes we just suffer over over decisions when 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 we don't have to. And and the good leaders all boiled it down to, you know, even complex decisions. They said when it's a complex decision, I listen to people, the stakeholders. I look at the data. I outline the options, which is really important. And then I pick one. And, you know, that's uh, – th- there's a lot of books written about decision-making, and a lot of them are very sophisticated with, you know, string theory and, you know, pivot tables and – yeah. <laughs> yeah. There,
0: Mine well, has sports stories. Oh, yeah, but <laughs> well,
2: there's not another decision-making book written about the word whatever. Yeah, no, there should be. As, um, as, as simple as that.
0: and. As simple as it is, I think there's a lot of nuances when we look at saying whatever in the realm of empowerment. So whether it's personal or professional, um, as we prioritize not only the decisions we make, but prioritization of who makes the decision, uh, how do you distinguish, I'll, I'll use a classic one, I'm married and uh, there are certain decisions that are in my best uh interest aligned with my productivity, accessibility, and gratitude, that the uh, whatever response is one of empowerment to my spouse, uh, not necessarily avoiding uh, anything. It's an intention of, I want to make my wife happy, therefore, I don't care where we eat. I want her to pick where we eat. I don't need to make that decision because it's one of empowerment. How do you distinguish that?
2: Yeah, you better check in on 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 that word with your wife, David. Uh, <laughs> yeah. a, I've got a lot of anecdotes about, about that because it can it can be dismissive. I mean, there's a lot of dismissiveness in whatever, um, and it can also be you make the decision for me, and I'll blame you later.
0: <laughs> and sure. and well, that's <laughs> what she does to me. That's, yeah. that's
2: different. well, yeah. Well, I, you know. <laughs> I was a managing partner at Accenture for many years and consultants, I dealt with this all the time where uh, the client would say, well, I don't know, you know, can you, can you make a recommendation and pick one? And I, we would do it. And then of course, that that was a way of saying whatever, because we'd make the decision and get blamed for it. So I would, it's a classic case where a guy comes home the partner says what do you want for dinner the guy says whatever and and then i just want to you know the woman says i just want to slap you because uh, i'm going to make thai food cuz you cuz i know you don't like it yeah <laughs> so yeah so it's there there's not there's it's a very nuanced word it's it's like the f word i mean there's so many different meanings wow. that and but they're all bad the only the only good meaning i found is where someone says something like, you know, uh, I, I will, I love you and I'll do whatever it takes to win your affections. That's it. After that, it can mean lots of things, but one of the things that, that, and I thought this is where you were going, David, is a, a lot of the leaders said the larger the organization, the more likely it is that there's a whatever culture in the organization Mm -hmm. because people feel helpless that any, any decision that they're going to make is it, it doesn't matter so whatever because it doesn't matter mm. so when That's you, going yeah. off what mike said when you said
1: um your gut feeling you were talking about intuitively and instinctively you have this like i should go this way and then there's a process of trying to analyze data what's that fine line so like you said because i'm reading this great book on uh, the education system because they have my son on the spectrum and he's not on, definitely not on the spectrum. So I'm reading every book on autism and the, and, the, and the system. And the education system, is it sucks because, you know, it's just making you a cog in a machine to make you a worker. So instead of saying, oh, whatever, put him on the spectrum. I'm like, no, 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 no. I ask every question because I'm leaning into my gut feeling and I'm reading every book going, This doesn't make sense. Give me that doesn't make sense. Give me more. When do you know when you're over pushing something Right. And when, what's the balance? You know what I mean? Because yeah. there is a balance. You can't be just all gut with no data, but then you can't be all data with no gut.
2: Yeah. Um, it, it's a great comment. And um, people point to Steve Jobs all the time because he always used his gut. He talked about it. I use my gut. But his gut was informed by 25 years of looking at products. His, his gut was informed. And when people say, I want to use my gut that's that's great if it's informed and i think to your comment you're informing your gut and so of, that, that's that's there's a them. there's a balance there so you will know your gut yeah. your gut will know the gut is a fine way to make a decision if it's informed and that's that's the most important thing and i i do not overcomplicate decision making a gut is a fine way you know simple pros and cons work you know uh pattern recognition works if you're experienced also um i had i interviewed one young person who yes every decision he has to make he just asks siri uh, oh, yeah. that is not recommended uh the same guy also used the magic eight ball he turned he would ask the magic eight ball question. my eight balls weren't the magic ones <laughs> <laughs>
0: depends on the night mike <laughs>
2: no no
0: but no, your, your mushroom work
2: that's different the gut was really off then yeah. But so I'm trying not to overcomplicate it because I think there is a ton you know, that first two minutes is important. Using your gut is important. I, I also, you know, a simple way that I'd like to make decisions sometimes is what would so and so what you know, I have a personal board of advisors. Some of them are dead, some of them are not, but they're not readily available. So I'd say, you know, what would what would Paul Newman do in this situation? Because he was smart and adventurous and sensitive and so There's all kinds of ways to make decisions, but most of them don't need to be complicated.
3: Rich, one of the things I think about a lot, especially in leadership or as an entrepreneur, is we inevitably are going to make mistakes. And I think making mistakes can lead down a path of uh, paralyzing and crippling people in leadership and entrepreneurial roles from continuing to make decisions. How do you kind of course correct in the event and in those moments when you've made the wrong decision?
2: then you recognize that, that you did that and, and try to fix it. That's, that's, that's one of the benefits of making fast decisions. You can fix it faster. Mm. I tell the story, this, this one, I I really resonated with me where I interviewed a a woman entrepreneur. Um, I, I used to be in venture capital. I'm still in venture capital. And, um, she told the story about how she received $5 million for her startup. And, um, she thought she was making decisions and she wasn't. And it was all about cost. So someone would come to her and say, I want to go to this conference. It's in Las Vegas for three days. She'd say, oh, whatever, go ahead. And then, the, you know, well, I want to take my, um, my team with me. Well, whatever, whatever. She said whatever to all these small decisions. And in so doing, she ran out of money. It wasn't a big decision. It was constant, small cost decisions that she thought, she thought didn't matter. And boom, they did. And it was, she learned and she's, now she's successful again, but she's not saying whatever about cost anymore.
0: And one of the takeaways, uh, Rich, that I'm hearing you talk about, whether it be your intuition, whether it be the eight ball, uh, whether it be the five daily practices that I use of knowing your what, your who, and your how before um, the best part of the strategy and decision-making is to have a strategy uh and stick to it and therefore if it's aligned with you know what's important to you you'll know quickly and be able to make those decisions quickly uh instead of you know using the caveat of whatever uh we now always know what's important and we prioritize according to that whether it's our intuition or what the matrix of eisenhower whatever way you want to make a decision it, how important is it to prepare uh your framework of how your decisions uh, are made.
2: It, well, it gets back to that intent. It gets back to, you know, understanding what you want to do, understanding your intent. And it can be as simple as, you know, waking up in the morning and your intent is to have, have a good day. It could yeah. be as simple as, you know, getting exercise on any given,
0: I mean, there's, I can't. Uh, do, do non-negotiables help? So I, I have non-negotiables and use time as a dependent variable to those. So, you know, one, I'm going to get this much time on my health, this much time with my family, this much time uh, to study time, to use it productively and accessible and graciously. Uh, how important is it to have a non-negotiable incorporating?
2: That That's a really important underline. And I, 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 this is my 10th book. I'm, I like to write. I deal with writers all the time. And I see so many people, their intent is to write a book. But their decisions don't align with that in how they spend their time. So so the book never gets written. Uh, So there are are, non-negotiables. One of the most interesting guys I interviewed for the book uh, is a guy named John Bullock. He's in Kansas. He is both a very successful attorney, corporate attorney, as well as an Episcopal priest. And his intent is to help people. And that sort of guides his practice in his priesthood it's and he melds them together in a in a miraculous way it's it it was an inspiration but it I, I think you're right on the money there david about you know non-negotiables and getting back to this you have intentions and you're and you're following them
0: it's kind of like being a sports agent who wants to make the world happy it's intentional about that <laughs> That's the reason i went to occidental like. Human epitome of uh, oxymoron, and uh, it's great to have experts like you out there. I, I think decision making, and that's why I wrote my book to utilize sports stories to show you how coaches, athletes, others in sports have made decisions that we can apply to life. But if, if you make decisions quickly and you have uh, the way of making a big difference by making the small choices, because choices lead to patterns, pattern. pattern uh, leads the clues on you know getting intentional and what we pay attention and give intention to equal those coincidences. That's what that book means to me. Everyone should go out and get it. If you want something extremely valuable in your life, learn how to never say whatever and to make the small decisions to make a big difference. Uh, Richard Moran nails it again in his 10th book. I thought we were good with 499 episodes, 10 books. That's a lifetime for me. RichardMoran.com. Congratulations!
2: Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys.
0: We'll have you back. Thank you. Awesome. Man, there's nothing more. I, I actually uh, look to ask obscure questions for a variety of reasons when I interview people. One of them is to see how quickly they make decisions. And you could, te- you could test someone. Uh, and you could have a lot of fun by asking, you know, what would you do in this situation? And if even hypothetically they can't make a decision, imagine what they do in real life, in real time uh, in the best in biggest leaders. I know the young people, and I've been around some highly impactful people. They're like, how do you guys do it? How do you, how do you make so many decisions so quickly, you know, and how, how do you know? Well, you don't know. That's the whole key. You don't know what you don't know. And so have a criteria to make those decisions. Uh, all right, we got our next guest waiting in the wings. We were are set up well today. Joshua Friedman's in the house, co-founder, CEO, at Six Seconds. Sounds like my love, like Michael, uh, <laughs> at six seconds. don't <laughs> know if
3: I can help you with that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you could. I don't know if you want to, but you could help me. <laughs> six Seconds. Give <laughs> me a push. <laughs> <laughs> or stopwatch. jmfriedman.com. <laughs> I knew I could change the tenor of this, this uh, 499th episode of Office Hours. They don't call it Wacky Wednesday for next. Oh my so, goodness! What do they say, Michael? If, have you heard about the sixty-second lover?
3: No, tell me. You
0: got a minute? <laughs> oh, i, I, I they going to say
1: you're done in a minute?
0: I think. <laughs> well, anyway, we're you set them
3: up on, on that topic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> one of one of the greatest assets that all three of us have or the greatest skill sets is in emotional intelligence, and our friend is the leading emotional intelligence researcher uh, and CEO of Six Seconds. It's a global nonprofit organization uh, that promotes EQ or emotional intelligence. And it's tied in is my team is so good. Uh, we were just talking about decision making. A lot of people don't realize how important emotional intelligence is in making decisions. Uh, it's one of the key capabilities of making decision is the higher the level of emotional intelligence we have. Uh, since uh, Joshua, thank you for joining us, of course, on Office Hours. and. I'm looking at emotional intelligence and wondering how, as a researcher, what are the characteristics? How do we see if someone is emotionally intelligent?
4: Well, uh, my answer to that was to develop an assessment. Uh, I'm now, um, we have a lot of different assessment tools that we published at Six Seconds. What we found is that the measures that were out there were interesting, but they weren't really actionable. And as we were working with organizations, um, some really big organizations like US Navy and Marine Corps, the United Nations, uh, Qatar Airways, FedEx, what we found is we needed measures that made sense to leaders and made emotional intelligence something practical. So as a, a scholar, there are a lot of really interesting tools out there. As a practitioner, as a consultant, uh, we decided we needed to make one. And it led us to have this incredible data set. Um, we published the world's largest study on emotional intelligence. And we also have been able to track the impact of emotional intelligence on individual and organizational performance. And that's what I hope we can talk a little bit about today.
1: Awesome. Well, let's lead into why. Why did you call the company Six Seconds?
4: <laughs> well, the, the when we look at emotions... Uh, they're actually chemicals, and so there's a, a pe- chain of peptide molecules that we experience as emotion. And a lot of uh, a lot of people use the metaphor of a lock and key. And so you have this little key, and the key has a unique structure. And you have receptor sites in your brain and body, and every living cell in your body. And these chemicals go into your bloodstream. They affect the the set point of all of those cells. They change the way you think. They change the decisions that you make. They change the way you show up. They change the way you influence. They change your heart rate, your digestion. Like everything in your body is regulated by emotions. Those chemicals last for about six seconds. So if you're like me and you say, you know, okay, there's real value in these feelings. It means you have this six seconds window to tap the value. If you're somebody who's like, I got to get out of this stuff, you have this little six seconds window to slow down and shift
3: wow wow i love that joshua you know i i think often when you look in a room of four incredible people two of them are going to have style and be rocking tom ford glasses and be incredibly intelligent and two of them will just be hanging out and so i'm really curious here (laughs) joshua um tell me if you could (laughs)
4: be in the rocking tom ford glasses category with you
3: that's right, brother. So I'm, I'm really curious. Hey, Mike, Diamond, I'm
0: glad to be in the effed up category with you though. Yeah, yeah.
3: well, I think we all might be there, buddy. Um, how, define please, what is emotional intelligence? I think that this is so lost. It's a buzzword right now. I don't think people have clarity about it. And I think because of the lack of clarity, it's causing confusion for employees, employers, brands, the marketplace, like society as a whole. What is emotional intelligence?
4: Yeah, I think you're right. And maybe we can start by just saying intelligence. Um, So intelligence is accurately getting data and then effectively using that data to solve problems. So mathematical intelligence, we get the mathematical data and then we balance our spreadsheet. Right. So that's, you know, and if you if you put bad data in, you're going to get bad data out but we need accurate data and then we need to use it effectively. Same thing with emotional intelligence. We're gonna take emotional data, we're gonna accurately pick it up and then we're gonna effectively use it to solve problems. The simpler definition that I actually like better is being smarter with feelings. It's not about head over heart, it's not about heart over head, it's about those two things working together. Let's get smarter with feelings, not have feelings be in the way of being smart.
0: And I know uh, emotional intelligence affects leaders because I look at leaders as intelligent followers and emotional intelligence obviously would be a great asset, culture obviously, but uh, you've done so much research with hundreds of thousands of people and you have these tools at six seconds. You know, I'm most curious about performance, you know, how does emotional intelligence help us with our performance personally or professionally?
4: So let's start with the broader context. You mentioned culture. Uh, I'm sure you all have noticed that the Gallup data, you know, 20 some years ago when they started publishing that data, I was like, wow, this is really, organizations are gonna really shift the way they think about people. Cause this is mind blowing that, you know, 25% of people are engaged. And now it's down to 21% in the US and 16% globally. So can you imagine how much money we are bleeding? I mean, from a national economy, we're talking about trillions of dollars. Of, you know, if one fifth of our workforce is actually fully productive. And as a CEO, I just like I can't imagine that my organization could survive like that. So, well, what is it that engages people? Well, it's mostly, it's emotion. It's a sense of belonging. It's a sense of connectedness. It's a sense that our work matters. We're doing important stuff together, right? And there's this emotional component to it. And yet most organizations approach engagement, like let's put, you know, a ping pong table in, like, come on, that's things. Don't try to fix people with things. You know, you, if you have bad leadership and you have bad relationship, you're not going to fix that by putting in a foosball table. Although I'd like a foosball table in my <laughs> So, again, emotional intelligence gets, helps us get this data and use this data to solve problems. Engagement is a problem, it's an emotional problem, it's a puzzle. And if you are saying, you know, no, I'm not going to, emotions, like, we didn't talk about that at work. Like you're just wasting your leadership capacity and you're wasting your people
1: josh so much time has passed since the book daniel goldman wrote on emotional intelligence incredible book i read years ago is that book still relevant or is is, is it like now like dated like sometimes books like there was a book wayne dye your only it really yeah. now you're like, uh, mm. right? So the original Daniel Goldman, he was, he was a genius. Great yeah. He book. just came
4: He's out. A- he just came out with a, 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 kind of updated edition of the book. I think it's really relevant. Uh, <laughs> I, most people that I know who sort of I, like, do you have that book? It's like, yes. Have you read that book? Well, you know, kind of, it's a little dense, um, but it's brilliant. And it's just like, it's such a simple, he describes it so beautifully. Like, hey, emotions are part of the way we operate. We've got to get smarter with them, and and you know, and just stop making dumb mistakes. Now, when Dan was researching that book, he looked at the work of a lot of different people. He looked at uh, Peter Salovey and Jack Mayer, who really invented the science of emotional intelligence. Peter Salovey is now the president of Yale University, one of our advisory board members. Uh, he looked at um, the work that we were doing back in in, in the day. Uh, on how you grow these skills. And he came and he looked at our programs uh, in education and said, hey, this, this is how you teach emotional intelligence. That's, that's what you're doing here. We're like, well, we hadn't heard that term. That's pretty cool. Tell us about it. Uh, but he wrote in his, in his uh, 1995 book, he wrote about our methodology as one of the two models he'd found in the world of how you really grow these skills. And that's, that's really what we thought it started. Amazing.
3: Joshua, I'm curious for for some people, and I would include myself in this category. You know, growing up, uh, emotions are often devoid of all relationships and interactions. Uh, You see this, unfortunately, more and more and more what do people do with this data? Like once they'd come to sixseconds.org and they have this assessment, they get their hands on data, which is arguably the most important thing that one can have. Like, what do you do with it? Especially if you feel like, I don't know how to be emotional. I don't know how to tap into these. And as a leader, particularly, like if you're stepping into this new realm of trying to understand yourself at depth, where do you begin with the data that you extrapolate from this, this assessment with you guys?
4: Well, so that's why we created, uh, our own assessment back in 2005, because the other tools that we'd found were, as I said, they were really interesting, but they weren't actionable. So we decided we wanted to, to understand, you know, I told you, we, we started way back, uh, really in 1967, uh, our founding team, I was born then, uh, but, uh, our founding team started learning how to teach these skills and we looked at, well, how do we actually develop the skills? What have we learned over 30 years of, of growing these skills? Let's build a measure that gives people a pathway to that. So instead of saying, Oh, here's your, here's your data, here's your diagnosis. Uh, what we've done is we've said, here's your pathway. Here's how you actually practice this. So our organization's vision, we're working towards a billion people practicing emotional intelligence. And so for us, the data isn't just to have the data. The data is to say, here's how you practice. You know, and here's how each of you can practice. And the, when the basic process is super simple. Uh, but when you start getting your own emotional intelligence feedback from the assessment, it gives you, okay, here's what I can leverage. Here's the talents that I can put in place. Here's my my style of using emotions. And it's going to be a little different for each of us. But I think the, the, the important thing is to start realizing this is actually valuable for me. It's not, you know, it's, it's not a nice to have and I, you know, conscious of time here, I recognize the era that we're in. It's even more crucial because it's going down in the world. It's one of our key findings and it's becoming even more predictive of workplace performance. So like we've seen year after year correlating emotional intelligence, with team performance and workplace performance, and that correlation's getting stronger at the same time the scores are going down, which means if you're trying to solve these emotional puzzles, this is what you need.
0: And I agree completely. It allows for that decision-making adaptation with the acceleration of change. It makes sense that we would have to be able to utilize our feelings as well as making uh, intelligent behaviors and decisions that will aggregate compound and accelerate in the direction that we want in. I keep hearing again and again, those Gallup numbers, uh, you know, we've done so many shows. It, it, It is remarkable to think, uh, that how successful we would be, how productive we would be if we were more engaged in what we do. And I think part of that aspect is technology itself, that we have not realized, especially the leadership, uh, the power of how efficient technologies uh, have become where you know we had a standard as little as five years ago, this is how productive you could be in a day mm. and the leaders don't realize how productive you actually can be. And So we're getting away with very little engagement because technology is carrying the productivity uh, and we haven't made that shift. I know we will, but it'll be really interesting where engagement goes when the leaders start understanding, how engaged we could be uh, and start using the emotional intelligence component at sixseconds.org. J.M. Friedman, incredible author, as well as uh, incredible expert with emotional EQ intelligence. Thanks for joining us. Come back, I know we got a lot more to share. We appreciate all the great work you're doing. Please, everyone, do your little assessment there. It'll change your life. Productivity, accessibility, and gratitude are tied to emotional intelligence, sixseconds.org. Join us soon. Hopefully, after we turn over the 500th episode, we'll have you back. Thanks so much, Josh.
4: Thank you all. Have a great rest of your uh,
0: day, evening, night. Yeah, <laughs> day whatever. night, whatever. Right. Thank you for joining us. Bye. All right. Usually, I'm the mobile one, man. He always pulls over. You notice I, I just have my driver just take me on the mobile meltzer on office hours. My favorite part of the show takeaway of the day we had, once again, I want to compliment Gigi and Raluca because our guests are so well-coordinated. Uh, yeah. We're blessed, uh, Mike, to have built this up where we're yeah. having people uh, like this joining us every day. So anyway, what's our takeaway uh, of the day, guys?
1: I, I love the emotional intelligence component, but what I also loved, and it didn't click to me until when when he said make a gut decision, but on prior information you've gathered. And someone asked me the other day, why am I so good at interventions? Is because I've studied people and I've been doing interventions so long that when an intervention starts, I let go of everything and I just know what to do. And I think, and you always talk about it, and my talk, being a student, so I, you gather as much information as possible from the environment, from people, from books, from podcasts, from shows. And then you follow your intuition that you've got the backing (laughs) and the receipts and the references. So you're making a gut decision. That's actually based on your information. You've gathered. You're not just making a gut going, I don't like this, or I don't like that. No, you actually know why that decision is making. So be a student in life, take everything in from the buffet you know what i mean and then you'll know how to hyper focus with intention your decision
3: mm. love that mike my my biggest and and again go into what joshua said i actually wrote this down because it's just such a great reminder that in a social economy that's built around things that you cannot use things to fix people and, <laughs> so and i that, love that thing I mean, I, you right. know, it's so interesting to to coach so many people on a daily basis. And it's like, it is in the moments when we're in the mud together, that shifts happen. It's not in the reading the books or the coming to the events. It's like, can we sit and be humans together? And, and that really struck home to me um, because it's just a reminder that no matter what you try to throw at us a, a problem, the solution is always
0: people and kindness,
3: love, compassion, hope,
0: joy, and grace. I spent too many years of my life buying things I didn't need to impress people I didn't like to make me feel better and uh, not a great way to go. I, that, that line resonated with me more than any other line the whole day. So I'm glad you wrote that down. And please uh, text that to me because, you know, I codify uh, lessons uh, like that and create stories around them. Um, my takeaway is a combination of both of yours. And it's, you know, we have to have mechanisms to find clues that then lead to patterns. You talked about real problems or mistakes. The same thing holds true for solutions. So if we can find people like Josh um, and Rich that give us uh, a system to say, hey, here's where you find the clues. Now look for these patterns. Now you have the framework to make choices, clues, patterns, you make good decisions, which lead to productivity, more value, accessibility, accessing what we want but also being accessible to others to serve as compassionate leaders and then of course my main cornerstone gratitude Uh, through proper decisions or choices we can be gracious why because proper choices lead to light love and lessons when we make a choice we can learn a lesson if you don't make a choice if you say whatever there's going to be no lesson to learn Uh, but When we have clues, planners, and choices, uh, we can do that. And I think that's a a common bond or thread today, a takeaway that I'm going to take away besides the great one-liner from Joshua, the great lesson, which you'll hear on stages, hopefully from all three of us, passing on the great brilliance of our guests. Here we are in episode 499 on the precipice. Uh, We're almost closer to 1,000 than we are to zero. Uh, This will be the last time I can say that. Anyway, Mike Diamond dose of positivity that's what you are in my life that's the book go ahead reach out grab that book it's it's a winner michael unbroken uh think unbroken podcast think unbroken expert coaching group you're killing it man uh people need to follow you and join you watch you on stages hopefully i'll see you both very soon in person so i can hug you and congratulate you Uh, when i look at both of you it reminds me i want to be a celebrant not a celebrity you guys can be cele- celebrities. I'll be the celebrant and celebrate both of your successes. Thanks for joining me. Thanks. Bye, guys. Bye, bye. All right, everyone. You can also email me if you like. Free Friday training coming up. Uh, today's Wednesday, though, so I think the oh yeah, the Friday training is going to be on Thursday. Is that right, Liver Luca? Uh, I can do that because they're my trainings and I don't miss every week. I just changed the, the Friday training to a Thursday. So I've been doing it for over 23 years without missing. Uh, so I appreciate you allowing me the flexibility to do Friday training on Thursday. It's good to know they reminded me. It's at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, but email me in, if you haven't registered. Over 80,000 people have registered for our training, david at dmelcher.com. When you register, you get a free signed copy of my book. I pay for the book and shipping. So register for free Friday training get a free book. If you forgot to give your mom a Mother's Day gift, give it to her. Or I'll send you two books if you make the request. One for you and one for her. And she can come for training too. Oh my God, it's a bonanza for Mother's Day. What can we ask for? Not much more. But there is one thing that I suggest besides emailing me at david.demelcer.com. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks everyone.